This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ. Sign up for our email list and check out our website at AmplifyRJ.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And finally, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review. It really helps us literally amplify this work. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. A little peek behind the scenes. This intro is the only part of the podcast that's written word for word. And as I'm writing, I'm reflecting on how if you listen to the podcast every week, you might be tired of me telling you how excited I am about the conversation with today's guest. Well, sorry, not sorry. This is the first, I hope, of many conversations with the contributing authors to the groundbreaking book, Colorizing Restorative Justice. It's a collection of 18 essays by restorative justice practitioners and scholars of color exploring the issues of racism and colonization within the field of restorative justice and restorative practices. Today's guest is the one, the only, Dr. Gay Lang. Beyond her contribution to colorizing restorative justice, using restorative practices to climb the leadership mountain, she has a decades-long career in education from the classroom to advising the White House. She currently works with the Texas Education Agency and is starting to work on bringing restorative practices into corporate America. I can't wait to share our conversation, so I won't. Welcome, Dr. Lang. Who are you? I am Dr. Gay Lang. I have been a public educator for 48 years, and I enjoy education more than anything else. It's my passion. Mm. Who are you? I am a daughter of my parents, mother, Mary and Robert Lang. I am a sister of seven other girls and a sister of three other boys. Who are you? I'm a Christian, particularly a Catholic at this point in my life and always have been. Um, I'm a wife of my wonderful husband, Joel. Who are you? I am a singer, dancer, fun-loving person. Those are my hobbies. I like singing and I like dancing. Who are you? I am a passionate woman about restorative practices. And I don't call it restorative justice. I call it practices because I think justice comes under there. Discipline comes under there. So I'm passionate about that. Who are you? I am a person who believes that there is good in the world. We just got to find it and everything that we do. And one last question. Who are you? I am a person that wants to stop racial injustices around the world if I had to but particularly for those people that look like me, African-Americans, it's pretty painful to watch. And I do believe that I'm the person that can take everyone to a different place and talk about the moral compass that we need to guide ourselves by. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing who you are. We're going to touch on that in a little bit. I also want to thank you. Um, I called you last night and you said, hey, let's record tomorrow. Uh, So I want to thank you for uh, being willing to jump on just like this. But I think it's really important uh, before we get going that we check in. So to the extent that you want to answer, um, I'm asking in the fullest sense, how are you? Well, I guess I'm doing wonderful compared to a lot of my friends. So I'm doing great. I'm not COVID involved. I'm COVID free. My husband is COVID free. Our household is COVID free. So that's one blessing. So I'm fine in that regard. I am very good in terms of where I am in life in general. I am going to be on my next birthday, 70. So for a person that's nearly 70 years old and had a good life, I have no complaints. I'm blessed. That's what I can truly say. Yeah, there's there's so much I know that you've experienced over the almost uh, 70 years <laughs> of your life. You talked about how, you know, you were someone who is super passionate about restorative practices. Um, and you've been doing this work for a while. I imagine even before you knew the words restorative justice. So um, in your own words, uh, how did you get started in this work? Well, I worked for the state of Texas as a trainer, and I'm a statewide director for restorative practices. And we began this in 2014 to mm-hmm. look at what we could do to reduce the um, the number of students that's been suspended from schools disproportionately. And so we got involved with restorative practices. I did all the research and I developed training manuals to train other teachers and people in Texas to do it. And we've done quite well in Texas around bringing it to the table and we're still working on it. It's a work in progress and I enjoy what I do. Yeah. How did those, uh, how did that work get started for you? I think it got started because I was wondering why our students are having such a hard time in school and why they're being suspended at a higher rate than their counterparts. And so when you look at discipline, it has to do with relationships, whether we accept that or not. It's all, everything we do is about a relationship. You and I have to have enough of a relationship to even have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so those things are important when you're dealing with students. And so because of that, I was just grateful that I, I had that opportunity. But way before I was a restorative practitioner officially, I was a restorative practitioner. I think most people, not all, but most people that are in education are practitioners. We don't call it restorative, but when you take time to find out what's wrong with the student, call their home, find out if they needed lunch, give them a chance to redo work, talk to them in a calm voice, all those are restorative practices. It's not punitive, it's more restorative and supportive. And so I have been in education 48 years and that's I think I was restorative most of the time. There are times when I don't think I was restorative, but for the most part, I think my practices were at my heart of heart is to give everybody a fair chance and to work with parents and students as best I could to get them to a good place. And that's all restorative is, is about building relationships and giving people the benefit of the doubt and giving them tools to work with to be in a better place. Yeah, absolutely. I learned about you because you were one of the many wonderful authors uh, featured in the book Colorizing Restorative Justice put together by uh, Dr. Edward Valandra and the good folks at Living Justice Press. Link in the show notes for those of you who want to purchase that and support uh, all their work. But you talked about very early on in your teaching career as a Black teacher um, in, you know, uh, suburban Los Angeles. Um 
you experienced things differently than uh, your non-Black counterparts. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, when I started teaching, I was a brand new teacher and I was very excited about being a teacher because I said I always wanted to do that. And um, back then they were doing what you call um, swapping teachers to make uh, equity at school. So if you have a predominantly white staff or Anglo staff, you had to integrate. And part of that integration is bringing African-American or black teachers in. So in this particular school, there were only five black teachers, five grade levels, five black teachers, one on every grade level. Mm -hmm. We did not eat lunch together. When we saw each other, it was on the parking lot after school. So I taught the gifted and talented students in fourth and fifth grade, and I taught them math. And um, I didn't use a book because if you're gifted already, you already know how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. What I, why would I bore you to death with numbers like that? Mm -hmm. So I created what I call um, real world experience where I gave them a budget on Monday and things that they had to spend the money for, house notes and car notes and food and groceries. And so we did that for six weeks, but we did different you know, things with the money every week. And then we did a spreadsheet, we balanced it out. And at the end of the six weeks, we went to the bank. However, during that time, because I had some Asian parents and they uh, would stand at the door, one of them almost every other day she was there and I would invite her to come in, she would never come in. So she went to my principal to complain about me. And I was wondering what the complaint was because I didn't do anything. And he said that I was talking too loud and that she was afraid her daughter wouldn't get anything out of it. And the little girl was awesome. She loved me to death and brought me gifts all the time. So I didn't understand where that was coming from. <clears throat> so uh, I did tell my principal, I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, it's just who I am. I can't speak softly, that's not my personality. I wish I were a soft-spoken woman, I'm just not that woman. And I'm tall, I'm almost 5'9", so I'm not teeny weeny. So that was a problem. So uh, after I did that, and we had the conference with the parent and the principal who did not support me, I uh, ended the semester with a bank visit and the bank was so impressed with my work, they called the press and we were in the local paper for teaching math in a different way. Of course, then she was very happy. Oh my God, you're very good, you're very good. I said, mm-hmm. And I bought all my degrees and put them on the wall after that conference to let her know I am a degree person, mm -hmm. but I always have to prove myself everywhere I go because for some reason, they feel like you're African-American, you're not as good as, and I object strongly to that because we're twice as good as our counterparts because we have to be. Right, and th that was one of the things that really stood out in reading that book. The other thing that you get to compound on that is you're an African-American woman, right? So we're fighting sexism and racism or the patriarchy and white supremacy, right, um, at the same time. And that happened time and time again <laughs> over the course of your uh, career as an educator. Um, are there any stories that really stand out to you on how you needed to navigate that? One of the stories that really... I, I, I got to say, this was one that really angered me so that I, I just, this is how I got my doctorate degree. This story <laughs> led to my doctorate degree. So I was an assistant principal in a, a suburban area, and um, it was predominantly African-American students there. However, um, one, the principal was removed. He went to another place. He was promoted, I guess, or took another job. And I was the assistant principal. So I was asked to leave the school until they found a replacement. Mm -hmm. And I applied for the job myself. 
since I was doing it, I applied for it. So I held the school together for nearly 90 days or something like that until they found a replacement. But anyway, I interviewed. And the white female at the time told me that I wasn't ready for the job, even though I held it together while you were looking for someone. I did a pretty good job. There were no major snafus. And so I said, oh, okay. I said, no problem. So she she hires an African-American person from another district, a male. I didn't have a problem with that. But I think her goal was to have me, he and I, to be at odds because he took the job. In other words, we'll make you uncomfortable enough to not to deal with this. He was a nice guy. And I told him up straight, I said, I will work with you until the end of summer, but I will be leaving. He said, well, you shouldn't leave. I said, no, I think I'm going to go back and finish my doctorate, get my doctorate degree. So I did that. And when I put in the resignation, the white female tells me, oh, listen, gay. I know when you need to have move and I will tell you when you should move and I will tell you when you're going to get promoted. I said, oh, really? I said, well, let me tell you this. I'm going to be Dr. Lang like you pretty soon. And so that is why I'm leaving. But thank you for the offer. And I left and got my doctor degree. That catapulted me into knowing you can work as hard as you want to and have as many degrees as you want to, as many skills as you want to. You have always got to prove yourself and go the extra mile as a Black woman. You definitely do. There, The standards are not the same. The rules are not the same. Right. And like when I hear you share what she shared with you, uh, that was a little bit confusing. When I hear like what she said, like the condescension in the tone. Oh, yeah. It's right. Like, uh, uh, what? Even like like using nice words. Right. And knowing that like you're not like the message that's coming across is, you know, you're not good enough. I'll take care of you. Um, that's not the only time that this this happens. Right. Um and as uh, your, your chapter in the book is about uh, climbing the ranks of leadership within education um, as a person of color and as a woman, right? And I imagine that's not the only time that happens. You know, teachers of color um, are often tasked with, or educators of color are often tasked with doing their job, right? <laughs> Teaching your subject, doing the administrative things, but also navigating race relations. And that is not um, recognized as work whether it's educating your peers um, or just standing up for yourself, what do you wish people knew about the struggle that that is? I think that people need to understand the politics exists. It's called racial politics or school politics. It's everywhere. You can go to school, you can go to work, you can have it at church, wherever. Politics is politics. Unfortunately, when it affects your career and your livelihood, it becomes very detrimental if it's not done well or understood well let me say not done but if you don't understand the navigational tools you need one you need to understand that you have to no matter what someone tells you you have to have it in your head that you are better than average and always have been because it's expected of you number two when someone puts you down directly or indirectly you come back with a very strong well i understand but i'm going to do this be firm about who you are. Don't be afraid to say, I am better than that. And I'm not going to let you treat me like this. You cannot be hostile and angry because then you become the angry black woman. So I always tell them, I'm going to own the angry black woman for now, because until you bring her out, I'm not going to be angry. You bring her out. I'm going to show you what she looks like. So don't tell me about the angry black woman, because I see you as a woman who is an agitator. You're an agitator woman. So if you're going to agitate, then anger comes after agitate. 
So mm -hmm. once I let people know how I really feel, I think that they stop the whole madness thing. But the one thing we have to do as people of color, we need to navigate with precision, if that makes sense. You need to be precise about what it is you wanna do, how you wanna do it, and who you align yourself with. You have to have an ally that's of the other main culture that gets you, because mm -hmm. that will be your advocate. That will be the person that will help stand up for you, maybe not 100% of the time, but when it's needed, they're there. And one of my friends, uh, a story I could tell you, she was an assistant principal. Uh, she was an Anglo or European. I don't like white and black, by the way, because I'm not a color. I am a person. We're the only groups that are called white and black. Hispanics are called Hispanics. Native Americans are called Native Americans, uh, Latinos. We are called black and white. I am not a color. And my friends are not colors. I hate that. But the United States have fixed it, so we'll always be at odds. But what do I know? That's just an observation. So my best friend is white, one of them anyway. And I became her friend because she was an assistant principal at the middle school I was working at. And I was a science teacher back then. And um, these are, we were in a faculty meeting and these women at the meeting were very unhappy with her. For some reason, I didn't know the story. You know, I was just a teacher myself. They were white women. And uh, they, she was having her meeting and they were talking while she was talking and over talk. I said, wow, you know, I'm thinking that is so rude and so disrespectful. So I didn't say anything because like I said, I'm just a teacher myself there. And so the next faculty meeting, they did it again. But before that meeting, I asked other people, I said, what, what's, what's going on with that whole thing? You know, why are they so rude to her? They said, I don't know. And one lady said, well, you know, one of them's mother applied for that job and didn't get it. I said, get out of here. I said, but that's not her fault that the woman didn't get the job. So I just said, mm. so when they started talking in that second meeting, I said, could you all take that conversation outside? Because I'm trying to listen. The whole room got quiet because nobody talks to them like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm African-American. These are three white women. And they've been at that school longer than me. And they have reputation. So I just kept talking. And they looked at me cr crazy. I, I look right back at them. I, you want to talk? Go outside. I'm sitting right here. I want to hear. End of story. So then my friend, now friend, she's the sister. She said, Gay, you have no idea what you've just done. I said, what? She said, they are vengeful. I said, I have eight sisters. Bring it. Bring your A-game, because I have eight women that I have had to deal with. So whatever you could throw out, girl, I could throw that 10 times back to you. They didn't bother me, but they always gave me that look of they can't stand my presence. And I would walk by, by intentionally say good morning. Hey, how y'all doing, girl? Have a good day. That's the politics I play. You could be, you hit hard, I'm going to hit you hard, but I'm also going to be hitting you with nice things too. So to let you know, I, I'm better than you. I'm way better than you. And I think that the psychology of that for me has worked. I always get me an ally and that lady became my ally because whenever I needed anything, she said, Gay, whatever you need, let me know. She became an ally. She was white. She was in control. She was in power. I wasn't looking for her to be an ally. I just don't like injustice. When I see it, I'm going to say something. And if I don't like it and you don't like it, let's just have at it. I'm good. I can handle myself. And it's all yeah. right if you talk bad about me because I can do the same to you. But we can talk civil or not. It's your call. Yeah. Uh, there are two things that stand out to me from that. I'm going to come back to the allyship in a second. But one of the things that um, you, you highlight in your book through all of your experiences, there's this theme of like 
it would have been better if we had a restorative practice. Oh, yes. And definitely. I'm not saying that restorative practices are nice and neat and polite. Oh, um, no. <laughs> but what could um, a restorative practice have brought to that situation? Oh, God, so many things. First of all, when you think about three women who's against one woman because their parent didn't get the job, which had nothing to do with her, it would have been nice if the principal or someone who knew that this was going on, I'm pretty sure that they knew because people talk at schools, they know. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't someone have a restorative circle where it's called repairing the harm, it's a tier two circle. So you have your tier two circle and you have the people who caused the harm and the person who was harmed. And you ask the questions, what happened to those three ladies who were against her? So what do you all saw that happened? What were you thinking about at the time this happened? And what do you need to do to make this right? They needed to know, the person who was harmed needed to know why were you doing this to me? They needed to explain their position. Now the person who was harmed can go back and say, and here's what happened on my side of the fence. So mm -hmm. now you have both the stories out and then they decide how to repair that harm. How do we fix this between us so that we can move forward? And I think that that is so critical because you, you have to work with people. And you can't keep it in a bad situation. You have got to work with someone every day, whether we like it or not. It's just, just, just the way it is. So having a way to re put that in order or make things right is important. So I think that they would have been, it would have been great if we could have had a restorative circle around repairing harm and conflict. And let's just talk about it and come up with what we think is best. And I think once people get their feelings out, which is where the bottling up of the harm comes from, then they're good. Once you get your emotions out on the table, your thoughts out on the table, your feelings or whatever, now we can talk about the real issue of fixing it. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I imagine that you didn't have the words restorative practice, restorative justice no. at the time. Um, where did you learn those? Um, I learned that in the last five or 10 years when I did the work for the state at the time I was doing that research and um, did a lot of reading about it through um, books, trainings and things like that. And so I was pretty impressed with it. And I found out it's been around 5,000 years, <laughs> 5,000. Mm -hmm. So when people tell me it's a fad, I just laugh at them. I say, you really have no clue, do you? And I show them the indigenous people, you know, the First Nations, Native Americans, and, you know, the Aboriginal people, these people have been doing restorative practices. That, that is their life. This is who they are. This is right. not a made up thing. This is not a practice activity. This is the way we solve problems. Mm -hmm. And we get in a circle and then maybe it's not a circle. Maybe it's just a people of gathering, we gather together and talk about what happened. Why did it happen? Who's been hurt by it? How can we fix that? And that was so impressive to me when I read that information. In fact, I got it off of a Living Justice Press webpage, The Origins of Circle. And that was when I first began to understand the power of the circle. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, um, you, you talk about it in the framework of restorative practices, not restorative justice. It's not just about the repairing harm. It's how people live together um, and move together together. Um, I like to lean on the words um, 
around the term uh, around interconnection right um, yes. like from our african ancestry right like ubuntu like i am because you are, you are. and so like of course when um there's harm between us um i'm gonna want to repair that because i'm hurt you're hurt and we want to be good together but that also means that in our every day, I'm going to treat you in a way that's not going to harm you. That's going to be for your benefit because that only benefits me, right? That's not just about repairing harm. It's, it's so much more than that. And I think like, you know, God bless Howard Zur, God bless Kay Pranis and all these white people who have brought restorative practices and circles to, uh, the Western context here in the United States. Um, but they both acknowledge, right? They, oh, they do. Yeah. They, they, they didn't come up with these things, right? Uh, Howard uh, learned from indigenous people in New Zealand. Kay learned from indigenous people in Canada, right? Uh, what we now call Canada. Uh, there, there's so much that has been a part of, you know, the way that indigenous people have been together. And now we're in this position where we're relearning those things, right? I think that one of the things too, I will tell you, um, Whites who do restorative practices have learned it from the natives and the people who have done it all their lives. Uh, I was in South Africa. I did a conference there two or three years ago, and I compared apartheid to the racism that we experience in America. And I wrote a paper on it and presented it over there. And when they did the apartheid, they actually did parts of the circle. They didn't do all the repair and the harm part, but they did let all the people who were hurt confront the person that hurt them. If you saw right, the truth and family, reconciliation process, there right? you go. Truth and reconciliation. That's exactly what it was. And that was impressive to me. I read about that. Things like that helped me to get a better knowledge, better understanding, deeper knowledge around what it looks like in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now a lot of the work that you're doing is bringing restorative justice practices um, to education in Texas. Um, in the book you write, at the start of that, didn't go so well. The people who were doing it were not necessarily being restorative to each other um, to the extent that you're comfortable. Can you share what was going on? I guess for me, I, I'm i a, a person, once I read something and get an understanding of it, then I think this is how it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. When I don't see it's going that way, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what it says here. And I think that because we were all quote unquote new practitioners and really didn't know all the information that we know now, we were all struggling to try to figure out the best way to present our stories, to present the process, to present something to the learners or the people mm -hmm. that were coming. Yeah. And I think that we got into a whole lot of egos, I think. And that's just me saying that other people may not see that. I thought mm -hmm. it was a lot about egos. Yeah. I thought it was a lot about uh, jockeying for who's the best, who knows the most, and who's, who's whatever. And some had more experience than I did. Others had the same experience I had. But together, collectively, we had to work together to do the job. Of course, it got better after we had to you know, have those meetings of, okay, guys, we have got to not look at it this way. And there isn't one way to tell the story and that you have your right to have your voice as I have mine, but it doesn't make mine right or yours wrong. And I think having to get to that piece helped us to clear the air, but it took a minute to get there because we didn't realize it was going on. We didn't yeah. get it until I said, some, some, some. 
something didn't work for me. I said, this is not smooth. This is not the what I, I envisioned it to be. I mean, no one else knew that because as the trainers, we worked through it. But still, in the training, the trainers ourselves, we needed to be more restorative, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, a, a couple things come to mind. Uh, I did a lot of work in um, Illinois, in Chicago, um, and the the mandate from the state for restorative justice came down, right, SB 100, <laughs> and um, without any thought to, like, providing resources for training, right? <laughs> um, but, like, when it's a mandate, right, um, that's not how this work works, right? And so I was curious, like, how did like this, like, it has to be one way um, or it has to be right uh, played into that where I think there's a lot of ways that this can be done well. There are also a lot of things that are just wrong, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> and for those of you who are not uh, watching uh, this stream, uh, we got the gr greatest uh, face of wrong. Um, but I'm wondering if you could uh, share a little bit about like some of the conflict that was going on between um, the multiple right ways and the ways that were not restorative at all. I think one of the non-restorative ways was, I think for me, because I was a new practitioner and I was not quote unquote in a classroom doing it. And then we had people who were in a classroom doing it. Then we had people that were administrators that were doing it. So all of us were coming from a different angle. Then we had researchers at the university level doing it. So everybody had their own piece to bring to the table. So I call it restorative practices or restorative discipline practices because we were using this classroom model, you know, about discipline in, in schools. Whereas some of the people who were working with it were social workers. So they called it restorative justice. So even the name wasn't working well when we're training people and educators, they, they know it as justice, but you align that with the criminal justice system when you hear the word justice. So we were mm -hmm. trying to, as educators, have people understand it was more about discipline than you know, justice, because parents may perceive that differently. They may say, what are you talking about, restorative justice? My child hasn't been, hasn't been to prison, hasn't been to jail or anything. Why are you calling it that? We might get that. So I'm looking at all the nuances of the, the outcome of if we don't align the words correctly. So we finally got that finished. And that was a battle because they have a different perspective. I'm an educator. I'm trying to get you to see educators need to have this laid out to them so they get the parts right away. The other thing is uh, that we had to conflict with the way we, I would roll this out would be as an educator. <laughs> part one, part two, part three, this is how you do part one, this is how you do part three, we're educators, we need step by step. Otherwise, their version of people should experience it, once they experience it, they'll know. Yeah. I can experience all I want to, but if you as an educator expect me to teach another person how to do this, my experience is not going to teach them that. I'm just going to mm -hmm. share my experience. So we had to get all those pieces online. Finally, we did, but it took a minute. Woo! Took a yeah. minute. Coming from someone who is not explicitly an educator and someone who trains, right? The way that I was tr trained, right, or taught was like through those experiences. And that's the way that, um, you know, I, I try to do the work. And, you know, when we're, we're talking about indigenous people, right, and this is just their way of being, um, there was never in indigenous communities, all right, we're going to have like restorative justice 101, right? Restorative justice 102, restorative justice 202, right? Um, 
it's just you know uh, this this uh, a couple episodes back uh, we had uh, Helen Thomas who is a hunk Papa Lakota educator talk about how you know with her mom she was just taught like no we just live in this circle way, right. right restorative justice what is that um, so it's it's a way of being and when we live um, people who are settlers on this land right um, who have uh, lived under uh, a country that is a result of colonization, enslavement, land theft, um, and like now still existing like white supremacy culture. Um, we don't get to live in that way all the time. And so no. like the way to um, teach people is partially experience and partially yeah. like here's step yeah. one, step two, step three. Right. But we can't expect people to be like, embrace this with your whole lifestyle after right. one training. Right? It's not going to happen. Yeah. And it, I think, David, that's what the struggle was for me. After I read all this, it was so empowering to me. I experienced the circle. And I tell people it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to even feel the sense of circle. You're going to feel okay when you're experiencing it. When you walk away from it, you're going to think about it. And if I'm expected, I'm expecting you to help children or do this in your classroom or provide circle practices with them, I can't expect you to engage in that without understanding every part of it and why these parts make sense, why these things are important, why that relationship is so important, why building it, taking the time to actually work with your students, to lift, let them have a voice, to help them feel like they belong. Why is that important? And all that is all those steps that I'm taking you through. You know why they want to feel important? Do you know why their voice is important? Do you know why it's important to hear it? Those things have to be taught to people because that's not how we think. We don't even think like that as Americans because that's not, we, we, we're not of that culture. We, did, we weren't even born in that whole, well, I was as an African. In Africa, they do this, but in this country, in the United States, that's not how we engage. It's just, it's just not how we do it. We get there and we do something and that's the end of it. Relationships Much more are transactional. Not yeah. Right. It's not a relationship. So you need to first keep building on that. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. You have to really work to have everybody's voice. Hear their voice. Don't talk over them. Let them express themselves. Hear what your students have to say. Allow them the space to say it. And that is a teaching part of all of this because they didn't, we don't live it. We have to first get them to see it, experience it, now teach it. You've experienced this circle, now here's why it's important and here's what you want to make sure you help your students get to. Because without that relationship, you're not going to change discipline anyway in your classroom because they don't care. Kids need to know that you care about them in a special way. When you bring them to a circle and allow them to express themselves and it's safe, they know that you care. Now we can talk about building on those relationships. Now they will care about what you say to them in class and they will learn from you. But what do yeah. I know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, what comes up for me with that is one, um, educators, white, black, Latinx, all, all educators, not all, most educators were brought up um, teaching, uh, knowing that, you know, discipline means you, know, you do what I say, um, and you respect me because I'm an adult, um, and that's what we're that's what we're uh, struggling against. I'm curious. You're someone who works within the the system, uh, the, the school system, right? To change it, um, is it changeable? I think it is, and I have seen it in Texas. 
Our teachers, every training I, I do, I find people in that training that are so passionate about this. They actually care that they have student relationships. They actually care that their students feel something. And I'm so proud of them. Not all of them, but most of the ones that I work with, most, not all, actually embrace this in a way that is changing. I even have some data that, you know, teachers send me, Dr. Dr. Lang, I did a circle for the first time and the kids want another one. When the kids actually want more of what you, you're, you're telling them, that's the first sign that things are going to change. And I'm so proud of them. And I get notes all the time, little quick emails. Hey, look at my kids in this circle. Now before COVID, of course, now that mm -hmm. COVID has hit, we're doing other things, but they, I have seen their attitudes shift about discipline, even principles, instead of them automatically saying, okay, you gotta go. They find a way to have a restorative conversation and give them another chance. And I think that those pieces help make the discipline in schools more powerful because it's no longer discipline, it's around relationships. And discipline is not a nasty word, by the way. I'm disciplined. I wouldn't have a doctorate degree. to teach. Right. right. And for some reason, we made it a nasty word. It's like, what, what, what are you talking about? I said, I'm disciplined. I have to have discipline. I'm gonna be doctor, I'll be still missed. You gotta have discipline to get all that. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with being disciplined. What's, what's wrong with that word? I don't get it. So I have to change that mindset. I said, no, no, I'm disciplined and so are you. We have to be, but we have to tell teachers now, discipline doesn't mean a nasty word. It means that I wanna teach you how to be a better person, how to improve your skills to be able to communicate with me. I wanna communicate with you. And one of the things in my training, I always tell them to tell their students, students, I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to respect you and I want you to respect me. We're going to do this together, build the relationship. That's the sentence I tell them to say to their students outright, be transparent. I know I'm not the best teacher in the world. I've not been the best teacher. I want to be a better one. Can you help me? That's what the really the message is. And right, teachers try, idea. they try so hard. I got to give them credit. A lot of teachers are killing themselves trying to make this work. So I'm working with them any way I can to have, have good places for them to be. And I, I really believe this is possible. In my heart of heart, I do. Yeah, definitely. And I think like this idea of, of sharing, um, sharing the work with your students is foreign, right? You're not like pouring into them and they're producing back. It's an exchange of ideas um, and thoughts. Um, one of the people that um, I work with, like they don't call themselves a teacher. They're like a co-creator of learning space. Oh, right? I like it. I like <laughs> right? it. Right? Um, like shout out Des Moines. Uh, All right. They, uh, they're also in Texas, but, um, but they're, um, they're all about, you know, partnering with their students. Um, one of the things that comes up for me from what you were talking about is like, you know, this idea of coming together um, takes more time. Oh, yeah, it <laughs> right? does. Right. And I think like a lot of the times um, people push back on that, like, oh, I don't have time for this. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to get all these things done. What do you say to people like that? I say you're wasting your time anyway. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to take time, let's just take this scenario. Help, help go, go with me, David. I'm a classroom teacher. I teach fifth grade. I have five kids, four kids in there that are discipline problems. They just 
interrupt my class. I can't teach. They're shouting out. They're walking around the room. They're picking on people. Okay, these are four or five. I have 20 kids. The other 15 kids are not necessarily the kids that are doing something like that. But the five that I have to keep stopping for is stopping me from teaching the 15. Would that make Mm -hmm. sense? So why wouldn't I stop? So why don't you just kick them out of the class? Yeah, let's just kick them out. (laughs) You can't. So if you put them out, let's just say we took the five out. Now you're going to find two two or three more that's going to take their place. So ultimately, you want your entire class to be in relationship with each other and you. So I would take the time on the front end to build all the relationships I possibly can. So on the back end, we're learning. The other part of it is restorative practices can be used in an academic setting. For instance, if I was teaching English and I was teaching the parts of speech, I can do what I call a mini circle in the morning. So I'm going to try this out with you, David. I am the teacher and I'm going to model for you. So good morning, David. Good morning, Dr. Ling. Today, we're going to learn about adjectives, but I'm going to ask you to and your classmates when I pass the talking piece to describe yourself using an adjective a word that describes is an adjective so now that you know a word that describes is an adjective i'm going to give myself an adjective but your adjective must be positive and i'm going to do alliteration alliteration means it sounds just like the title the first letter of your name it sounds just like that name so give it the same sound of your name the word has to have the same sound as your name so my name is Lang, so my adjective for me is lovely Lang. What would you like to say about yourself, David? Give me an adjective that begins with the D and the David together, D. Uh, my adjective would be delightful. Oh, delightful David. Okay, delightful David. And everybody gets a turn to say something positive about themselves. I'm teaching three things. I'm teaching you the parts of speech. I'm teaching you to take a turn. I'm teaching you to be positive with yourself and your friends get to see something good about you all in five minutes. So don't tell me that's not worth your time. You're getting to know your students right then and there. I can also do another one. So who's your favorite superhero? My favorite superhero is the lady in Black Panther. She was the general. She had the bald head. She had the spear. Mm -hmm. I love her. I forgot her name. Okoye. That's my one. And I even met her on Zoom. So I was really excited when I met her. So who's your favorite superhero there, David? Uh, Wolverine. Wolverine with the claws. Do you see every morning if I just did that one thing? That's what I call a mini circle. Just one thing. I get to know a lot about David. Which favorite ice cream? Which favorite color? Which favorite movie? By the time my favorites are over in six weeks, I can tell you everything about yourself because you've told it to me. And you're going to know about me. And your classmate, oh, you like Wolverine, David? My mama had, they start talking about things differently than fighting with one another and arguing about foolishness. You You got a dog? My dog is a whole new conversation. Create the space for the conversation. Set the dialogue up. Now you don't have discipline. You got people working together. Does that make sense? Right. And it's not just about them having the relationship with you. It's about them also having the relationships with each other. That cuts the fights down, the arguments. Now you can teach. And it's all taking five minutes of your time every morning. Five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. And at the end of the six weeks, guarantee you, I bet my paycheck on it, the relationships change. 
There you go. Not because I think it, it's because I know it. I've already done this with other people. See? Yeah. So it's not like I'm guessing. Yeah. This yeah, this work has like tons of application in the classroom, in schools, and even outside. This podcast oh, yes. is called This Restorative Justice Life. Uh, I'm curious, how has this work shown up in your personal life? Oh, it's everywhere. I, I'm i from a large family. I just told you that, a lot of brothers and sisters. So what I try to do is teach them things that I learn. I, I'm one of those people in the family. <laughs> Everybody says, what are you going to teach us this year? And it's always something. <laughs> But uh, I'm actually one of the younger girls. Everybody in our families are now in their 80s. And I'm in mm-hmm. approaching 70s and my younger siblings are in their 60s. But I always share things with them. And iMessages is one of them. And that's part of the restorative practices. iMessages versus you messages de-escalate. So instead of saying you didn't take the trash out, I was wondering if I could help you take the trash out. Do you Did you remember taking it out versus you didn't take the trash out, so now we miss the trash. Have another conversation. So I teach my nieces and nephews who have children iMessaging, and I ask them about if they can get at a table when they're eating, even if they did it for 10 minutes, just to check in on their kids. Not what you did at school, how are you feeling today is a better question. And I think that I've helped my own family grow in that regard and myself. And it's a it's a struggle some days because it's not always easy to be restorative because circumstances don't allow you to be even in family settings. But if you work at it and it takes time, you have to forgive yourself because you're going to mess up a couple of times. Just forgive yourself and say, oh, I wasn't restorative and, and move on. And also restorative doesn't mean you lay down on the floor and let somebody walk on you. That That's not restorative mm-hmm. either. Some people think you're not supposed to say anything. Just let it go. Mm. You get to say something. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, like, um, what was one of those moments of learning from um, a mistake? Ooh, I learned from, I make so many of them every day. I wake (laughs) up, I make a mistake daily. Um, One of the mistakes I think I made when I first started doing this, I did one at Thanksgiving with my family. And Mm -hmm. that was when I was a new practitioner. I just started it. And um, we had a family gathering for Thanksgiving at my home and I had them to bring something special for their talking piece because we wanted to bring something to the family that was meaningful and um, my sister-in-law brought something and it was her mother's a gift from her mother who was passed and she I guess it brought back some memories or something and she was kind of sad or maybe she wasn't but she cried and I, you know, stopped and said, "Would you? were you okay? And I hugged her and everything. And I wasn't prepared for her to cry because I didn't think it meant that much. And I think you have to be prepared when you're outside of the school setting for sure, or even in it, to be able to nurture people when they're hurt or ask if they're okay. And I wasn't ready for her to cry. And I think that that threw me a little bit. And from then on, I started reading more about what does that look like and how do you address that? And if that's something that people, you know, are prepared for and if it's the, a bad thing. And they said, no, it's part of the process when you're talking to people, especially if it's family members and people, you know, personally. So that was one of my learning experiences right there. And so from then on, when we did the circle, I said, it's okay if somebody doesn't feel that they want to talk or if you want to share mm-hmm. and you're, you're feeling here, just let us know that you're okay emotionally. I need to know that you're okay. Because if something is wrong, we can stop and take care of you. Because you always have to take care of your people in the circle. Yeah, 
there's a lot of learning in there and I want to pull a couple things out. One is to make sure that people know that they can pass, right? Yeah. Nothing's required, right? Um, this is all an invitation to that. Um, we're asking people to share their needs, not just respond to the question. Right. But if there's something that comes up, share your needs. And like another one is like, you know, you can't go in like with a predetermined outcome, like your idea is like, Oh, we're going to have this nice experience, like sharing things that are important to. I, yeah. Well, I thought the circle was going to be nice and tidy. And when she cried, it was like, I wasn't expecting that because I never experienced it before. So that was a new thing. And so they have a right to pass. They have a right to let their experiences be real and honest. And you can't prepare an answer. You, you have to be who you are authentically in the circle. And so for a family circle in particular, it was really, it was good. And I, I, I hugged her and everybody hugged her. And she said, but I'm fine. It was a good memory. I said, okay. I just wanted to know that you were okay. So I didn't know what to do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is like a drastic shift in gears. Um, but uh, we were talking about allyship a while back, and I wanted to make sure that we brought this back into the conversation. Um, when we're talking about, um, you know, navigating the world as people of color um, and education, but really just the world, um, what do you think, oh, I, I should just phrase it for you to answer with an I statement, right? What do you need um, from white allies, from male allies? I think if you're an ally, you have to be able to speak the truth and be able to own your own baggage. Mm. So I think white America or European America has to own some of the baggage. You have to know that some of what has happened or most of what has happened wasn't fair, equitable, or right. Owning the baggage allows you the space to say, I'm sorry, or the space to say, how can we make it better? Or the space to say, here's what I can do for you. But I guess one of the other pieces of that is even owning the baggage and admitting to some wrongs, that's only part of it. How will you repair that is going to be the the next step. I would want you to know what are your plans to make this better? How do you plan to put, I guess, a wrong, a right, make it a right thing? How do you fix that? And I know that you can't go back in history and fix every single piece of every single thing. But now that you know it's not right, moving forward, what will you do to change the narrative and if they could do that I think I could work with them but if you never admit it I don't know how we get to a good place yeah I think the first step of that is like what you were saying like internalizing like your role like Mm -hmm. did you own slaves no right um did your ancestors maybe do you benefit from the system of chattel slavery and then Jim Crow and all the other things that have happened since then that are still racist. Yes, you benefited from those. What are you going to do to change that? Um, First that acknowledgement internally, because like doing the actions without the acknowledgement isn't always helpful. (laughs) No, because that's why I say you have to own the baggage. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what your baggage looks like. So do you admit to any of this or do you 
do you feel like you had any part of any of this? Do you feel like you benefited or your ancestors said, like you said, but more importantly, you have to own that. You, you gotta say, yeah, I, I, and not just skip the ancestry part. What about right now mm-hmm. on your job today? Are you benefiting more than I would be benefiting? And the answer to that I'm sure is yes. So now that you know that you have, you're in the driver's seat, you are in the mainstream. You are the man or the woman that hires and fires. You are the man or the woman that brings in the diversity piece and you still hire your same culture. So what, what are you going to do about that? What changes are you going to make about your hiring practices? Yeah. What changes are you going to make about your promotional practices? The podcast that I have is Workplace uh, Diversity. I, um, I talk about the workplace and the diversity thing. A lot of people do the diversity training and put a check mark by the box, we're done. That's not it. Mm-hmm. You hire your one black person, your one Asian person, your one whatever, we got diversity. Diversity doesn't say that that's it. Diversity without inclusion, equity, and tolerance is nothing. You have nothing but saying you have, oh, let me point, there's my black person, there's my Hispanic person, there's my Asian person. That doesn't mean anything. It has to mean something when you do something about it. You include them, you bring them to the table, you hire them, you intentionally look for people of color to hire. You go to the places where they are. We are qualified. Don't tell me you can't find anyone. There are people that are qualified if you want them. Right. I think like the difference between qualified and having experience is different, right? Oh, yeah. We're never going to have the experience because we've never been given the opportunity. No. It doesn't mean we're not qualified for, for the for the job. And I think like, you know, diversity, right, is one thing. Diversity is like who <laughs> who is in the room? Um, inclusion thinks about like, you know, who feels welcome <laughs> in the room. Uh, it's a whole nother thing when we're talking about like whose voice carries more weight in the room um, and how is power shared. And I think like that's where, you know, maybe we're really starting to to make change that idea of like, you know, and I don't think in corporate America, in the business world, um, even in nonprofits, it's not about like bringing in more. It's a it's no. about like giving up privilege for people who, Ooh, who have it. you said a mouthful, David, <laughs> giving up that privilege. Oh, my God. We're not ready to give that up. Mm-mm. They're not going to give that up. So what do we do instead of giving up that privilege? How I, I, I offer this. And I don't know if that makes sense. I offer sharing your privilege. Hmm. You don't have to give it all up. If you got 100% of it, can you give 50% to other people? Can you give us some of it? So that we can feel like we are part of this. And that's the piece. No, they don't want it. giving up is not even it. It's sharing. If they could just share some of it, I would be grateful. I aim high. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, because like this idea, I, I I acknowledge that like, yeah, it's tough, right? To get somebody to, you know, give, give up, up that give, give up privilege. Um yeah, but like, you know, if you bring more and more and more people into the room, um, but you still had the, you know, eight white guys who were making the decisions, right. like, who who still like have the historical power, like, you know, not all of eight, not all of those eight people need to be there, you know? No, yeah. no, that's true. Yeah. That, that, if that's what you mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you've got eight people in the room and most of them are white and you only have two blacks or one black, one, one of everything else, they're outvoted automatically if you just go by a vote they're outvoted so i mean so yeah i think that's part of it right yeah but i want you to give them some of the power you can have eight 
but my vote as an African-American sitting at the table weighs as much as yours. So you're sharing some of that power stick. So if you don't share your power stick and you just have me at the table, I really don't have a voice. I'm asking you to give me a voice and give me some of the power. Give me some of what you got. If your magic wand has 10, 10 points in it, I want five of them or four of them, and then somebody else could get two. Now we're even. But you can't get all eight and give me one and somebody else has one. My voice doesn't have enough weight to change anything. I want the ability to change the to direct, to direct, ooh, <laughs> the way the conversation is going to go. <laughs> yeah, change the trajectory of the conversation. And I think like when I, uh, one of the things that Amplifier Day is trying to do is also move into diversity, equity, inclusion space, but um, not for the sake of, you know, just black faces, um, Asian faces, Latinx faces, right? Uh, queer representation. It's not about representation. Transgender, right? everything. It's about getting to justice, right? Um, yeah, because we don't want, you know, you say like, oh, here's our token black person. It's Ben Carson. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we went there, right? We, we don't want that. Uh, we want justice. Uh, we want this kind of change. And I think to the point where we integrate, you know, restorative justice into this, like how do we build the relationships with folks? Um, so, you know, people who are, um, who embody marginalized identities, how do we build the relationships? So they see us as humans fully willing to fully capable, right. Of doing the jobs, fully capable of, uh, holding this power with like, Nobody's asking for uh, power over the whites as heteropatriarchy. No, and I think that's what they see. Mm -hmm. you, you hit it on the head, David. They see it as us being over them, the way they have been over us. That's why they can't change that mindset. In their brain, oh, I can't have no black person telling me what to do, no Mexican telling me what to do. I'm not asking to tell you anything. I'm asking to share the stage with you and have equal voice and they don't see it that way they see it as us over them mm -hmm. and that's where that rub is david you that you're in that lane right now that's where i see it exactly that way they see it as you are bossing me around you are not gonna be able to boss of me i'm I, they can't take that can't take it that's why i have problems because i'm an african-american woman i take charge when i go somewhere mm -hmm. i'm in charge until i'm not in charge then it's your turn while I'm doing this, I got this, your turn, you do yours. But they don't want that. They want to have all of it. And that's the rub, boy, David. You hit it, babe. Uh-uh, don't be over me. Mm -mm. So what do we do? I think that nah, it's just me. And I have a different view of all this in my head. So <laughs> I personally think, let's look at it from all angles. My goal, and this is a lofty vision, is to reach out to as many corporate companies as we possibly can. We in America have, we have at least 10% of the African-American population, I don't know about all the other ones, that are well-educated and well-suited for corporate America. We have less than 1% corporate America places in the Fortune 500 companies. There's only six in America that we have black faces or any people people of color in their corporate suites, mm. only that many. So. I think that if we could get to, quote unquote, the money brokers in this country, the people who have that cash flow, because money talks in this country. Money is our, our God. 
it talks. Why not bring a round table of them together in a circle process and discuss our needs, desires, and wants, whereby we lift up what has happened and what could happen and how much of a player do they want to be at that table and are they willing to play? They have to be willing to play at the table because they hold all the cards. If you're not willing to give up and hold hold each other accountable and make things right when you know it's not right, now that you know it's not right, now that you know someone's been harmed, now that you know all the details and you don't change, that tells me something about you. You say you want peace in America, you want fairness, you want equity, you want this. When you want something, you have to give it up. You have to give something to get something. Nothing comes for free in this world. And how do you right those wrongs and be acceptable of all the races that you've harmed over time? And there's been some harms, lots of it. You can't go back and fix everything, but you can from this point forward, make it right. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about how they just don't care. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know right? they don't. <laughs> right? Like But you but David, if you don't put it out there, you you I like to put everything on the table. Here's what we want to see happen. So David was hurt last year on this job and all the whites just bammed him up. He didn't even get paid. He worked longer than everybody else. He what can your company do to repair that harm for David? Get him the respect he's deserving at this job and change those practices that you do in your job, practices and policies that literally cause this harm. Because your practices and policies are doing this. The way you set that up, you are creating the stage for that to happen. Stop creating the stage. And do you want to stop? If you don't, that's one thing. Why are we sitting here? Don't pretend that Nike is another one. Nike, black folks buy Nike like it's gravy. They could be broken in the Ten Commandments and they're going to buy a pair of Nike for a hundred some dollars. Go buy that Nike. You think they got corporate people that look like us in there? Nobody. Not one so. And we're spending that kind of money. And, oh, we're about Black Lives Matter. We, we're on it. Mm. Is that right? So who's in your corporate suite? Giving us more jobs is one thing. Corporate suite is another. Corporate means I literally have power to make specific decisions as it relates to policy, hiring, benefits. I've got the stick in my hand to change that. Just bringing us to work on as worker bees, fine. Got a lot of worker bees not doing anything. So I think that I would love to see people in corporate America because I'm starting with them first intentionally because that's where that money is. And money in this country is God. So we got to get the people who have all that money, who say they really care, show up now. Giving more jobs and is great. Nothing wrong with that. You know, starting funding for different organizations for my, nothing wrong with that. We still haven't gotten to that door. They talk about the glass ceiling. Damn the ceiling. We can't even get the damn door. Mm. To get to a ceiling. We can't even open the glass door to get to the ceiling. Get us in the glass door behind there where you're making those kind of decisions that affect us. Now we could do something. Yeah, I think about how I take the 
the view of white people don't care because it's <laughs> a lot better than white people hate us because I don't think they do. No, they don't hate us. Right. Um, and that was like a reframe that like my dad, um, who's, who's a black man, my mom is Filipino. Um, my dad uh, shared with me a, a couple years back, um, you know, around uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling's murders, right? I was like, you know, why do they hate us? They don't hate us. They don't. They just don't care, right? Um, I think like one of the things for me, like you were saying, like African Americans are twelve percent of the country's population, right? <laughs> um, and we make up even less of like those those places where people are in power. Um, and, you know, we are segregated. So people don't care. People think of us as what they see um, on the news and in the movies. And that's not right. And so, like, representation in those spaces do matter. But, like, to your point, representation um, in the halls of power, in the seats of power, matters even more. How are you going about um, getting to those folks? Well, I've been doing, I like, I started this podcast. That was one of the reasons I started it. I have a training that I do for corporate America. I'm developing it now. And I'm looking at all the nuances of the workplace in corporate America and what it looks like and why do we set it up that way. So I've done a training. I'm working to finish it up now. I have some modules and um, the modules are around restorative practices. Mm -hmm. Tier one, where you build the community first and changing the culture and the climate that's where you work at. Let's change this climate and culture to be a different one. Mm-hmm. Then when you have conflict, we're going to do more of tier two, repairing the harm. And you bring, you train people on how to do that. So if you're my boss and I had an issue with you and you happen to be a white male, I can't fight you by myself, but I can bring in somebody from HR who's had this training and HR could ask both of us that question so that it didn't doesn't become a lawsuit. It becomes a relationship building situation. And some things may have to go to HR and can't be done in a circle, but I guarantee you a lot of small things can be taken care of way before they get out of hand. So what I'm doing about it is creating training manuals so that I can train people on how to do circles at the workplace that will benefit everyone from management down to the last person so that they can feel like they have a voice and that they're a part of something. And if they can do that, then they become the company everybody wants to work for. Mm -hmm. They become the diversity magnet. They become the one that you want to work for this. L'Oreal is one of those companies. Accenture is another one. They have about 10 or 12 companies that are doing a pretty good job of diversity training and equity training and tolerance and inclusion and are doing an outstanding job of it. And people have recognized it and they say, you want to work there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like we just need to have a conversation offline about, you know, what what all that looks like, because uh, we're in the process of doing some very similar things, including um, some education about racial justice in there and like oh, the history yeah. of this country, because like you can't separate that that piece of it from from. No, it's hard. And it's a hard pill to swallow. I will tell you, David, it's very difficult for people to admit some wrongs they've done. And when I tell people I'm not mad at any white or European American person, because I don't know that you did me anything personally, because I don't know that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that your ancestors and my ancestors anything personally. But I know historically in this country, racism, all that existed, hatred, all that existed and your ancestors were part of it and my ancestors caught hell from it 
So how can we decide that we're going to accept that this was wrong, forgive each other for the wrongs, and let me know that you, you know, understand where I'm coming from, that this was painful to me and my people. And I want you to now stop doing it to me. Can you do that? Can we have that conversation? Because you need to own it. I need to forgive it. And we need to get to the next place. Because if we keep saying, you did this, you did this, you did this, you, you, okay, you did that. And are you sorry for that? Okay, prove it. Moving forward, what are you going to do about it? See, right. I don't want you to say, I'm sorry. What will you do from today on to make this right for me and the people that look like me or people who have been harmed by things that your culture have done, or the pe your race has done to us? What, what do we do about that? So... I think that that's where I am. And I, I train, I have my training manuals. I've been working very hard to work to get them fine tuned because every time I look at it, I find one more thing I could add or one more thing I should take out, one more thing to make it clear. But uh, I've gotten the first module done, there are five. And the first one, I built them around the restorative practices, tiers one, two, and three. And tier one is community building circle, tier two is repairing the home, and three is bringing somebody back to this fold and providing support for them. It's a supportive circle, circle of support and accountability. How does that look when you have done something to someone and they have to come back to work with you? Do you now harass them indirectly? Did you get some, I, I wanna make sure that person is safe. So I train people on how to keep them safe and the other people to feel okay with them being back. So all those are my training modules. Then I have an executive model where I coach the, actually the top level people on how to do practices around hiring, practices around inclusion, all those. So I've, I've been working pretty hard on it. And it's, I guess it's been this been almost a year coming up now. I can't believe it. So but, this uh, has all been happening in the midst of COVID. How has that gone? Oh, gosh. <laughs> COVID, COVID, COVID. It has changed a lot of the way I train, a lot of the way I do things. And circles online are very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. I don't I even call them. You. I don't even call them circles. I said, like, hey, yeah. we're here to like create space yeah. for us to right. share, right? Yeah. And for me, I have to kind of let them know that this is not a circle because it doesn't really function that way. I said that what will happen is you will have a voice, which circle gives you. We will establish relationships, which circle is a part of, and we will use our own personal talking pieces. So just hold it so we know that you have one and tell us about it. So we actually go through the process of talking about it and stuff like that, but it's very difficult to do. And um, I think on a scale of one to 10, if 10 is the right way to do it in a perfect circle, sitting in front of everyone and everybody's engaged, the online version of that is about seven. <laughs> if 10 is this, I give myself a seven. And some days I can get an eight because I have a good crowd. You know, people who want to be in a space, people who get it. And I, I, I expect them to look at me doing a circle on the video so they get the nuance of what that looks like. And then when we come on the virtual side of it, they kind of see what the pieces look like in action. So it, it, I give myself a seven, sometimes an eight, but it'll never be a 10. No way in the world it's a 10. It's, I, I'm so frustrated because I wanted to be a 10, but I cannot do that. It'll never be a 10, and I just have to accept it. So hard to accept them. <laughs> so to help Dr. Lane get to the 10, everybody who's listening, keep wearing your mask, <laughs> keep uh, you know social distancing, prevent gathering. We need to get back to that 10 for Dr. Lane. Let's go. Let's go. Um, I know. 
I want to transition into like the quick rapid fire questions. They're sometimes rapid fire. Sometimes I ask follow-up questions. Um, define restorative justice for yourself. For me, restorative justice is allowing me to be who I am in my authenticity without being apologetic for anything and giving me the right to have the same voice as everyone else and the same power as everyone else. Mm. Um, yeah. Thank you. There's, uh, you, you might've just answered this, but, um, I'm going to ask it anyway. What is one space where you wish people really knew this work? You kind of just oh, talked about God. corporate America, but is there another oh, space? If, if we can get it in politics, the politicians need to know. And this is not just any one group or one side. They all need to understand restorative practices is about relationships. If they had decent relationships in the political world, we would not be sitting at the place we are today respecting someone's voice, giving someone the space to have the voice and understanding and being empathetic is important for human beings. We are all human. Being a politician doesn't negate your humanness. You are still a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk about like money being our God and like it is. money mm -hmm. being such a big part of politics right now. Um, I think there are like, I, I think that makes it extremely hard. Um, Robert Spicer, who was on this podcast a couple uh, weeks ago, was talking about like, what would it look like, even like not, not on the national level, but like in the city of Chicago, right? For uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot to sit down with the aldermen, like, and really listen, um, right? Um, and even like, so like on that city level, um, there have got to be ways to like, you know, we're all working for the benefit of our communities, right? Uh, we all want to be safe. We all want to have good schools for our children. We all want to be housed, right? Um, we're just trying to meet people's needs. doesn't have to be about the power and the money. That's true. And unfortunately, because we see money as important and that's what's driving the economy, that's what's driving our thinking. Politically, just like I get in a circle with teachers. Why couldn't they get in a circle with their, their people and every group? If I'm an uh, alderman and I have it with the mayor and then the, the city manager has it with his little group, if everybody keeps having circles and meet in a circle, no longer put a table between you because there shouldn't be a barrier when we're having a talk. When we're having a conversation, we should not have barriers. We should sit in a circle face to face. Let's talk about it. Let's be honest about it. Put the prompt out there or the question of how do we solve the, the traffic problem. We noticed that this, what's your take on it, David? Have everybody have a voice at the table and every voice is valued for what they bring. And if we did circles every day in every meeting in every way and use the prompts, prompts meaning your questions, whatever that is, mm -hmm. and always begin with something that will either bring closeness, calm, fun, laughter, and end with something positive, energetic, a thoughtful. I think that your days will go much, much better. So I'm all about bringing it to the political world in circle processes where you respect people, give them a voice 
and value what they have to bring. And maybe your idea is not great, David. Okay, it wasn't great, but at least you got a chance to say it. Right. And you let a person know, you know, David, this time we're not going to be able to take your idea, but we like it. We'll table it, or we may be able to incorporate part of it. Value them. Let them know you. you it's cool. You know, you didn't have the greatest idea, but we can we can live with that. I don't think we even understand how to relate to one another anymore. We just don't. And that it's, it's sad because it starts to me there. I can take this to the religious se sector as well. Same thing. They're doing just the same stuff that everybody else is doing. And they could say they're not, but I'm watching it. I see it all the time. And, and it's not just in one group, it's everybody. So all of us, every group, every sector can use some circle processes and circle restorative practices and how do you talk to someone? How do you get them to a good place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, who are four people you'd like to sit in circle with? And what do you talk about? Living or dead? Oh, living or dead? Mm -hmm. Ooh, well, then you gave me a great one. <laughs> I would want to sit in a circle with Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. um, and I think alive, I have so many that I could do alive. Um, Barack Obama. One more. And Pope, the Pope. <laughs> what would you talk about? I would ask the Pope about, as an African-American, Catholicism has been around for centuries. We have never had an African-American Pope in all those years. Is there something that the spirits are telling them that tells him that the black folks can't do the job? Because we don't have anybody that's African. Truly, they've been a lot of African-American men that have been priests that have stayed the distance and done a great job. But even in Catholicism, there's room for improvement and lots of it. I, I really want to know from the Pope because they say it's, it's spirit driven. So what does that spirit keep telling you about black people? Mm. Just want to know. And Barack Obama, I would ask him the ultimate question, being a black man in America and being a president, did he feel pressure to do more for blacks or felt guilty because he didn't do enough? Mm -hmm. I think he's got, he's, he said a lot about, I'm not going to plug Barack Obama's book. Never mind. We won't uh -uh, go to that. I know I've seen <laughs> yeah, it yeah, in yeah, the yeah. book. He addressed some yeah, of it, yeah. but I still want to hear from his voice. What, what, what else can he tell me about that? Because he was in a tight spot. If he did too much, whites would complain. If he didn't do enough, blacks would complain. So he tried to stay the even course. And I get that. Mm -hmm. But uh, what was going through his mind? How did he feel ultimately deep down about all of it? And uh, Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, she freed all those slaves. She had allies and they were not black. She couldn't have done that alone. Wonder who her allies were and I also know who they are. So how did she develop those allyships? Mm -hmm. How did that make her feel? How did she ultimately trust them? Because she had to trust somebody. Yeah. Martin Luther King, he was peaceful, nonviolent. And he, he and uh, Gandhi would have been two people I wanted to talk to. When I was in South Africa, I went to Gandhi's home just to see where he lived and what did he do. He was a racist earlier. He changed. He was reformed racist. Um, but, <laughs> but I want to talk to Martin Luther King and ask him some questions about what drove him to stand up that quickly, that much, and take it on just what made you think you could do that what made what inside of you gave you the power the strength and the will to just stand up and say enough absolutely um what is one thing you want everyone listening to know 
There's so many things I could go with, but um, I guess I want people to know that don't give up on human beings. We, we're salvageable. Um, don't give up on relationships with whites or European Americans because a lot of them stood with Black Lives Matter on the front lines this time around. I was very happy to see that ally, allyship happening. But to be a true ally, I want anyone to engage, whether it be black, white, or whatever, whatever allyship you get, be authentic. Be real. Don't pretend you're doing something. And then when the crisis comes or the crunch comes, you back out and don't give the person the support that they need. Develop good, strong allies who will stand with you when the times get hard, and they will get hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, like when you when you had that question that you would pose to Harriet Tubman, like that that really hit home for me. Um, mm -hmm. And like you know, thinking about what you just said, um, gave me a lot to think about. Um, two more questions. Um, and this one comes with a caveat: whoever you say you have to help me. So, who's one person that I should have on this podcast? Hmm. Um. She's one of the authors in the book. I think you've already reached it. Janice Jerome. Have I haven't, you spoken with her? Like, I haven't reached out to her yet. Uh, I've got the contact information, but... Um... She's a powerful person. She has a story to tell. She's from Atlanta, mm -hmm. and she has a lot of stories to tell, and she's very well-versed in this, this work, far more than I am. She's been in it longer. And um, she has some really good stories. She really does. I enjoy talking to her myself. Yeah. All right, so we'll we'll reach out to her together, and then finally, uh, where and how can people get in touch with you or support your work? So www.workplacerestorativepracticesinc.com, mm -hmm. www.workplacerestorativepracticesinc.com, and that's my website. And I have a podcast that's going to be launched in January, and it's called Workplace Diversity, Your Diet, Diversity, Inclusion, Equity, and Tolerance. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely get both of those um, in the show notes. But uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom, sharing your story with us. Um, any words you want to say in parting? I just want to thank you. And you're such a young man to take on such a big challenge. And I'm so proud of you. I really am. And at 70, I could be proud of a lot of people because most <laughs> of them are younger than me. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not that young anymore. I'm 30, but you know. Oh, we're... I paid money to be 30 again. I would pay money. Because that, I want, but I want to be 30 with the knowledge I have. Yeah, See, I want absolutely. my experience to come with me. You can't take it with you. That's, that's the trade-off, you know? But I'm so proud of you, David. I really am and happy that I was asked to be on the podcast. And I hope, you know, the listeners will get a little something out of what I said. Uh, I know they will. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Ling. Everyone else, take care, and we'll talk to you next week. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, rocking our new merch, joining our Patreon, or signing up for a workshop. So many options! 
Links to everything in the show notes and on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.